Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year, and then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012, and it is now the 5th day of July 2016. And I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm standing outside my home in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin, and just down the 101 from AT&T Park, the home of the probable 2016 world champion San Francisco Giants. Now let me just stress my, at least to the best of my knowledge, Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin was not born in my family's home in Palo Alto. He was born in the town of Palo Alto, but then again, I have no evidence to show that he wasn't born in the house. By the way, that kind of right there, what I just said, notice how I phrase that. This is one thing, and and I'm not going to get into spirituality or beliefs, but this is one thing that always drives me crazy when I get into discussions about why I believe some things and I don't believe other things, is you hear the thing, a phrase I hear sometimes is, you can't prove that such and such religious thing isn't true. And that's right, I can't. But that doesn't mean that A, it is, or B, that the argument has any more weight. And I guess the best way I can explain that to someone is, I cannot prove to you right now that Bob Melvin was not born in my family's home. I cannot show you the documentation. I do not have that information. But that doesn't mean that if someone said to me, Bob Melvin was born in your home, I would say prove it, so prove that he isn't, prove that he wasn't. It's not how it works. Anyway, that's a little weird tangent that I just went down. Uh, I'm out getting the newspaper, and it's the 5th of July. Are the fireworks over? Are the, oh, it's, not, it's not the fireworks shows that I mind. I talked about this a little bit yesterday. You know, there was a big fireworks show by you know, the Bay Bridge, and then big fireworks shows all over Los Angeles County, New York, all, in county fairs everywhere. And those are organized fireworks. And that's fine. What drives me bananas are the, the fireworks that go off in people's yards and driveways and everything like that. It sounded like the end of Scarface in Palo Alto. And, I, and at one point, I just wanted to go to bed because I just found out something. I don't get the 5th of July off from work. I thought, you know, the 4th of July is on a Monday. And this stinks. A couple of years ago, the 4th of July was on a Saturday. And we got that Monday off. That was great. Now we just get the 4th. I'm supposed to be in work in a couple hours. That's just, I'm sorry. I just, I'm, I'm, uh, is that really enough for liberty? Is that what the founding fathers wanted me go to work today? Um, I'm picking up the newspaper, the San Jose Mercury News, and they have right on the front page um, the the uh, announcement of Kevin Durant leaving Oklahoma City to go to the Golden State Warriors. Now, this is not Sully basketball, and I'm not going to get into the breaking down of that, but I'm gonna, there's there's something about it I found kind of interesting. Uh, basketball is my second favorite sport. Uh I, I, I am not a basketball expert, although I said that to someone and they got into an in-depth conversation about basketball, and I said, the person said, I thought you said you weren't a basketball expert. I said, I'm not, not when compared to baseball. Uh, I, I am 
I rooted for the Cavaliers, even though I'm here in the Bay Area, I rooted for the Cavaliers in last year's NBA Finals because of the whole Cleveland thing. Now that that's lifted, uh, Durant coming to Golden State, I I can't sit here and trash that with any sense of objectivity when as a Boston Celtic fan, which I am, I was jumping up and down when they brought in Ray Allen and... uh, uh, Kevin Garnett in 2008. Now, granted, they weren't coming off of two straight finals appearances, but uh, you know I can't be a hypocrite about this. If Durant wants to go to the place where he thinks he'll get a ring the fastest, even if it means being the second banana on the team, th- th- that's his choice. And you may not like it. Fan- fans have the right to boo him, and he has the right to make this move. But a couple of things struck me as odd. And and you just sort of, you know one thing, if you listen to this podcast, and I know I do, that you know that I love thinking about the how parallel realities could have come about. How slight changes in what really happened in life could create entirely different outcomes. Now think about in that series between Oklahoma City and Golden State, where Oklahoma City had a big lead at home in, I believe it was the sixth game, and it just looked like they they were about to close out the Warriors and go to the NBA Finals. And, And if they had done that, if they had held on those last few minutes, and probably would have beaten Cleveland in the NBA Finals, then Kevin Durant has delivered a title to Oklahoma City. He's the biggest star Oklahoma City will ever see and probably resigns because he'd want to have the victory lap. And if that if that thing had happened, then chances are the you know, he's still in Oklahoma City. And here's another thing to keep in mind. The NBA Finals went down to the final minute Basically, the Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors played one minute of basketball for the NBA title because it was tied at three games. It was tied with a minute to go in the fourth quarter. So the, essentially the Cavaliers outplayed the Warriors for, the last, for one minute, and that's what determined the NBA title. Now imagine if in that one minute the Golden State Warriors outplayed the Cavaliers then there is no way Kevin Durant joins the Oklahoma joins the Golden State Warriors for this reason. Why would he have to? The team won 73 wins and back-to-back titles without him. Why would they need him? They would say, "No, we don't you go back to Oklahoma City. We don't need you. We're going to go for we're going to go for a three-peat." And those tiny little things changed the trajectory of several franchises. And it got me thinking, because I'm me, about the Red Sox and what happened in 2003. Now, as a Red Sox fan, we can't shut up about 2004 and the way that it unfolded, the comeback against the Yankees and the heroes and Dave Roberts and the Bloody Sock and Kurt Schilling and Keith Folk jumping up and down and all these different things. But think about this for a second. The Red Sox in 2003 had the lead with five outs to go to defeat the Yankees. Pedro, everyone in their moose knew 
that he tended to fall off a cliff after 100 pitches. But the Yankees could not hit the Red Sox combination. Look it up. They could not hit the Red Sox combination of Timlin, Embry, and Williamson in that series. So mix and match those three pitchers for the final five outs. The Red Sox win the pennant, and who knows what they do against the Marlins. I mean, I, I think they'd probably beat the Marlins, but who knows? I mean, everyone thought the Yankees were going to beat the Marlins. But just imagine this for a second. If the Red Sox had held on and won in 2003, if they had done that, think about how many people that we associate, Red Sox fans associate, with the 2004 title and what that means, and you finally delivered it, and putting the Red Sox caps on the parents' graves and crying and seeing those pictures over and over again of the Robert Steele and everything like that, all that whoosh is gone. And also, think about a couple other things. Kurt Schilling is probably a Yankee. Kurt Schilling probably joins the, is probably courted by the Yankees who are disgusted that they saw the Red Sox beat them on their soil. And Schilling wants out of Arizona, and they knew that Schilling was a, you know, a giant slayer against the Yankees in the 2001 World Series. And they went off and said, well, then we got to bring him aboard to be a Red Sox slayer. You don't think they'd do that? The year after 2004, they traded for Randy Johnson for that same reason. Other things would happen. You would have uh, Grady Little. Remember Grady Little? The image of Grady Little is of this guy who could, you know, made all sorts of weird managerial decisions. I mean, I, I've said this before. He wasn't fired just for leaving Pedro Martinez in too long. He was a... He made tons of weird decisions as a manager and just look back at some of his box scores of how he handled his bullpen how many times he pinch ran for David Ortiz which used to drive me bananas going like why are you taking him out of the lineup by the way in the Aaron Boone game in that game seven he lifted David Ortiz for a pinch runner in the 10th or 11th inning and he didn't come the pinch runner didn't come around to score so keep in mind, if that game went on to the 12th, 13th, 14th inning, David Ortiz would not be in the lineup. Just please, just keep that in mind about Grady Little. But if the Red Sox had won, then Grady Little would be one of those kind of quirky figures in Red Sox history. And you'd go like, oh man, you know, he wasn't the best in-game manager. He made a lot of weird decisions. But do you want... They won with Grady Little. They didn't win with anybody else. And with that, the need to fire him right after the game was gone. Terry Francona would not be someone on anyone's radar in Boston. Terry Francona, yeah, he was a player, play, I think, with the Expos, the Reds, I think. He managed the Phillies. I think he later managed the Indians. Yeah, I don't know. Why would I ever think about Terry Francona? Do you know who Terry Francona would be in Red Sox eyes? Jim Riggleman. You know Jim Riggleman? Nondescript white guy, 
hops around from managerial and coaching job to managerial and coaching job. How often do you think about Jim goddamn Riggleman? His name sounds like a, a supporting character in some John Cusack comedy in the 1980s. If I told you, if you weren't really big into baseball, okay, you weren't big into baseball, or you weren't, you weren't as knowledgeable of all the other teams and managers, like you only know your team, you only know the A's, or you only know the uh, Giants or the Dodgers or whatever. You don't really know the other team's managers. And I say, Jim Riggleman, is he a former Major League manager? Or is he a character in the sure thing? Which one is him? You'd have to stop and think, wouldn't you? And that's who Terry Francona would have been. Absolutely. Keith Folk? Keith Folk would have left the Oakland A's and the need to acquire Keith Folk for the bullpen, they would have had Williamson. Williamson would have been the guy who was brought in mid-season and became, you know, kind of in the postseason, replaced Young Young Kim as the closer. And it would be Williamson going, man, the, the person that turned it around was Williamson. How often do Red Sox fans think about Scott Williamson, who became this just unhittable force in the Red Sox bullpen mid-postseason. He was on the 2004 Red Sox, you know that? He has a World Series ring. He wasn't on the playoff roster, but he was there. So was Byung Young Kim, for that matter. But Williamson probably would have been the guy jumping up and down on, on the mound, and Keith Folk would have signed with some other team, maybe the Astros, or next, probably not the Astros because they had Lidge, you know, there probably some other team would have needed him. Who knows, may have been the Yankees to say, we need to get everyone because we can't have this happen to us. And Nomar would have been on the team. Nomar is a beloved Red Sox, but he's a complicated beloved Red Sox because he was the rallying cry on the team. He was. He w for years, he was the favorite player. He was the guy on the team. And... The, the no mas better. I mean, his name was unpronounceable. And to be on that team, lest we forget, Nomar was the front runner to win the most valuable player in 2003 before he slumped badly down the stretch in 2003 and wound up going to A Rod in his last year in Texas. But if he was on the team that won the World Series, that year, people would have forgotten the uh, uh, slump in 2003, and that would have been Nomar's title. It would be very similar to what happened with Pedro, who had some of his, you know, some kind of complicated ups and downs with the team a little bit in 2004, but because he was on the world championship team and pitched that beautiful game against St. Louis, all was well in the world. It was complicated because that was the year of who's your daddy and it was also very clear at that point that his days of being the superstar ace of the team was kind of going away. And in a way, Schilling was the equivalent of Durant. Schilling was the superstar that they brought in to complement the team that was already a good quality solid team. Now bringing in Schilling and Folk and ultimately making the trade with Nomar 
did that make the Red Sox a super team? Perhaps. You know, I was saying that about Nomar, is that one of the things that made it really complicated was that a lot of people point to a great turning point of the season. Several turning points of that season was trading away Nomar. Something that would have been unthinkable just 11 months before that the Red Sox did dealing him away and that people felt like, well, you know, it's something they had to do because he couldn't play every day. And they needed a shortstop who could play every day. They needed to shore up the defense. And in the end, while it was a startling move when it happened, it turned out to be the right move. Cabrera's defense, what Mankiewicz did, it was the right move for the Red Sox. If they had won in 2003, Nomar's probably a Red Sox for life. He's gone from being this beloved figure from the 90s and the early 2000s to being an immortal. And Orlando Cabrera, God, who the hell was that? There was a guy who was a decent fielding shortstop. Dave Roberts. Who the hell was Dave Roberts? He was this, he was this outfielder, mainly a pinch runner. You know, beloved player, in the, played in the West Coast, and never came east. Never made much of a dent east. These are the things, this is how fragile reality is. This is how fragile our concept of who players are, who is beloved and who isn't. 2003, Grady Little, Scott Williamson, Todd Walker. These would all be players that we look at and just go like, oh man, are those guys, they never, they, they never have to buy a drink again in New England. They're the beloved players. I cry when I think of my granddad, my grandma, loving the Red Sox all those years, but Grady Little delivered it. This is the fragility of reality. The acquisition of Kevin Durant by the Warriors made me think of that. If the Warriors played better for one minute, he's in Oklahoma City. If the Oklahoma City Thunder play better for a couple of minutes, then he's in Oklahoma City and the Warriors are trying to get some other superstar. It's how reality is placed together not by a grand design, not on a pre-written, predestined narrative, but in what is essentially a game of Jenga, that one thing could be pulled out and the entire concept of what you know as reality has been destroyed. And yet, that destroyed Jenga tower will become reality. And the, uh, the alternate world is something that is incomprehensible. Stop and think about that, you Red Sox fans who listen to me. I know a few of you do. Beloved Grady Little. When you see Terry Francona, and he was on, uh, you saw him, they cut to him from time to time uh, during the Indians game yesterday they were showing on ESPN. Admit it. Every time you see Terry, you smile. Even though he's no longer the manager of the Red Sox, you smile a little like, oh man, there's my manager. I have a friend of mine, dear friend of mine, who didn't follow the Red Sox in 2013 because he was so mad at how they had treated Terry Francona that he wasn't over it. 
Can you imagine feeling that way about Grady Little? When Grady Little became the manager of the Dodgers, and they would cut to the Dodger dugout, and there was Grady. Did you have a warm feeling in your heart? There's a website, a great website for Red Sox fans, called Surviving Grady. It's still called that. Grady's been fired for 13 years. Well, that's how reality is built. We love Terry and not Grady. And it was so close to being we love Grady and don't even remember who Terry was. Hey, uh, who owned baseball uh, for the 4th of July? Um, let's go through this. I believe, hold on, I, I actually just had it and I lost it. Um, it was Gregory Polanco got a pair of hits, uh, a pair of homers for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Junior Guerra pitched a great game for the Milwaukee Brewers. Aaron Sanchez pitched a great game for the Toronto Blue Jays. And old friend Mike Napoli from the 2013 World Series got the game-winning home run for the Cleveland Indians. Half wobs. Uh, JT Riamuto got four hits in that and walked in that weird, weird game between the Mets and the Marlins, uh, Max Scherzer pitched a great game, but it was a one nothing shutout against him. And Rugnet Odor had a great get offensive game against my beloved Red Sox, but the Sox came back to win. So if we keep the score at home, that'd be Polanco, Guerra, Napoli, and Sanchez got full wops, half wops for Riamuto, Scherzer, and Odor. Go to sullybaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski talking about the fragility of the universe and getting mad at people with fireworks. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast for the fifth day of July 2016. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.